0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I am your host Dan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Evan. How's it going? When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. These powerful
1: words from America's Declaration of Independence. And the revolutionary sentiment they embodied, serve as the greatest surviving example of secession, the topic of today's episode. Acts of secession have made their mark on nearly every society to date, and it's no wonder why. Human beings often disagree, and when those disagreements become larger and larger, more widespread and fundamental, great conflict inevitably arises. War, chaos, and power grabs are a common result, this much we know. But when conditions are right, civilizations may successfully split and maintain separate identities without reconsolidation. How does this happen and why? What can history teach us about this process? Will this happen again in America's near future? And
0: if so, what could it look like? We're no fortune tellers, but we'll give it our best guesses. Let's make sure we all agree what secession is first so that we don't confuse it with other similar political movements. To secede means to withdraw formally from an alliance, federation, or association as from a political union, a religious organization, etc. It's basically one side saying, peace out, and leaving. In common usage, secession is usually when one side leaves against the wishes of the other. If both sides want to be independent from the other, it can be said to be a breakup or a split, but not secession. For example, when Yugoslavia splintered into the many nations we recognize today, it was not called secession, but a breakup. Each ethnic group wanted its own area away from the others, and was willing to let the others go their own way. However, when the American South seceded from the Union in the 1860s, this move was greatly opposed by the North, making it an act of secession.
1: A revolution, on the other hand, is an overthrow or repudiation and the thorough replacement of an established government or political system by the people governed. The goal of a revolution is to take political control from the old regime, replace them, and enact changes. If this causes groups to fight back, or a split between the revolutionaries occurs, it is called a civil war. Revolutions are usually bloody and greatly damaging to the people of said country, but drastic changes can happen as a result. A coup d'etat is a sudden and decisive action in politics, especially one resulting in a change of government illegally or by force. Coups are never the work of the masses, but a small group, usually those close to the center of power. Palace coups are common throughout history. Maybe it's the Praetorian Guard, or the king's top advisor, or the top general, who takes out the leader quickly and ruthlessly, and puts himself or his co-conspirators in command instead. The great advantage of coups is that they are usually less violent overall, beyond a handful of high-ranking leaders who, uh, take a trip to Belize. The country is not engulfed in widespread war for years, and the new leaders know enough about the government to keep it running smoothly unless the coup upsets the people greatly sparking protest or revolution.
0: Now, a reform, on the other hand, is the improvement or amendment of what is wrong, corrupt, unsatisfactory, etc. If you can't beat them, join them. This is the legal way to change an existing system, and usually the most peaceful and gradual option as well. Finally, the last option is to just accept what you don't like in the current system and not try to change it. But that's no fun.
1: We know you have the American Civil War in mind. Is it fair to call it a civil war? In my opinion, not at all. Civil wars and revolutions are struggles to get control of the central government. In the case of America in 1860, the South voted to leave the Union and form a separate government. If they had marched on Washington to force their beliefs on the entire Union, then sure, it would have been a civil war. Obviously, the Civil War wasn't a coup or a reform movement. So what should we call this conflict? There are a few suggestions with varying degrees of accuracy and conciseness. The war between the states is often thrown out there, but that leaves it unclear as to which states are at war with which other states. It almost sounds like a battle royale. May the best state
0: win. Now there's an idea. Battle royale. Kind of like the Hunger Games or something like that. We'll take California's strongest soy boy twink versus Florida's weakest alligator wrestler. Who do you think is going to win there? Florida man slays communist gate in battle. We could all rally around that type of uh, violence, just like the fights in the Roman Coliseum. It could be great for this country. It could be a way for us to heal. What do you think, Evan? Uh, maybe the purge or uh, some kind of Hunger Games or Ender's Game type deal? You know I'm not going to actually advocate that. <laughs> it would if the people volunteered. You know, it was like, it was just a blood sport that you could sign up for and fight for your state and gain glory and fame and hoes. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Riches. So is this like Murder Park in the anarcho-capitalist literature? Yes,
0: exactly. Where you could, you voluntarily go in and whatever happens, happens. I mean, you accepted the terms, right? I don't know. It's something to consider, guys. I'm out here just trying to come up with ideas. At least I'm doing something. Moving on.
1: <laughs> Another option is the war of Northern aggression. Well, if someone uses that phrase, they are laying their cards on the table as a supporter of the Confederacy. However, if you do view the Union response to Southern secession as unjustified aggression, then it's accurate. But the biased nature of that term makes it unsuitable for a balanced discussion. What about the war to prevent Southern independence? Though a mouthful, it is probably the best phrase for the conflict, in my opinion. For the sake of brevity and familiarity, though, we will say Civil War for the rest of the episode. Dan, what do you think?
0: Now, I believe the term Civil War is simpler, like you said. It's commonly used and understood, but I also think it is mostly accurate. In a way, the South was fighting to maintain control of Union territory, as all the states technically belonged to the Union. When the South seceded, it essentially kept that land from the Union. So although the south was not actively fighting another faction to gain control of the entire United States or gain control of the capital or something like that it was fighting to maintain control of a large portion of it also had the tides of war favored the south instead they would have certainly pushed as far into the northern territory as was necessary to force the union to surrender then they would have imposed their will on them and settled their differences so one could argue that the civil war label could apply but for most people having two groups that used to be one group Fight to the death on the same piece of land is basically a civil war. So why get technical?
1: You may be right. If you want to inspire political change, secession is one of the many paths you can take. But here's the question. Is it the most moral one? Is it better than, say, an outright revolution with gulags, guillotines, and all the trimmings? Or how about a coup? What about passive resistance? And are these avenues morally superior to changing your Facebook profile pic to a black square? Here's what some thinkers and historians have had to say on the topic. Let's start with John Locke. In the last chapter of his Second Treatise of Government, Locke deals with the concept of the dissolution of government. He, of course, mentions that the dissolution of governments is often the result of foreign influence and invasion. But when it is the result of internal problems, Locke outlines these reasons for dissolution. Legislators ignoring the will of the people or their assigned duties. An executive officer meddling with the legislative schedules, debates, or exercise of their power, tampering with elections, subjecting the people to the will of hostile foreign powers, intentionally or otherwise, amassing huge executive power, abusing executive power to the detriment of the legislative body and the people, and abandoning necessary laws and protections. Doesn't all of this sound strangely familiar?
0: I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> To avoid this, Locke argues that proactive measures must be taken to secure freedom for each person, for he believed that a state of liberty was and is the state of nature, pre-existing governments whose job it is to protect those freedoms from infringement. Should that fail, however, Locke argues that the rebels and revolutionaries are not to blame. On the contrary, it is the corrupt legislators and the evil princes who have rebelled and brought a state of war upon the people by disregarding their stations and abusing the people. To quote Rambo, They drew first blood, not me. In such cases, basically anything goes. Individuals have the right to secure their prosperity by any means. Here are two great quotes from a legendary work, and maybe we'll do an episode on two treatises someday. The first quote, When any one or more shall take upon them to make laws without authority, which the people are not therefore bound to obey, by which means they come again to be out of subjection and may constitute to themselves a new legislative, as they think best, being in full liberty to resist the force of those who, without authority, would impose anything upon them. Everyone is at the disposal of his own will, when those who had, by the delegation of the society, the declaring of the public will, are excluded from it, and others usurp the place who have no such authority or delegation. And the second quote, if the innocent, honest man must quietly quit all he has for peace's sake, to him who will lay violent hands upon it, I desire it may be considered what a kind of peace there will be in the world, which consists only in violence and rapine, and which is to be maintained only for the benefit of robbers and oppressors.
1: Now, John Locke may have been influenced by uh, Catholic thinkers before him, even though he was Anglican himself. That's a topic for another time. Regardless, subsidiarity is central to Catholic social teaching. Subsidiarity is the organizing principle that matters ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. St. Thomas Aquinas is probably the one who laid the groundwork for this important idea in the 1200s. But it can be found in natural law. If a U.S. state can handle a task, the national government shouldn't do it. To do otherwise is a violation of the natural law. Likewise for city versus state and family versus city. The family is the building block of society, and power should not be moved up the food chain unless absolutely necessary. Of course, defending borders and conducting wars should be left to the national government, but most things can be more local. This relates to secession. If the central government becomes tyrannical and does not allow the local territories powers which are natural to them, this is a violation of the natural law and it should be changed. Now let's move on to an Enlightenment philosopher. Enlightenment in quotes. A man I call Jean-Jacket Russell, or you might know him as Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He posited that governments only existed to secure freedom for individuals under it. Otherwise, it should be abolished so that man can return to total freedom in his state of nature. But he was such a joke that I'm just going to leave it at that. Name a thinker that I disrespect more than Rousseau. I'll
0: wait. The U.S. Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution are what you get when some of the wisest and most well-educated men of a generation who have learned all the hard lessons of history secondhand through the greatest writers, philosophers, and historians of the world end up in a room together to argue about government for months at a time. It may be the most audacious and successful governing document ever written, and this is due to the unique checks and balances the founders attempted to integrate into the fabric of the new American government, through the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They knew Polybius. They knew the Spartan king Lycurgus. They knew Locke, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Hume, Voltaire, Aristotle, Plato, Marcus Aurelius, Cicero. And the best ideas of all these great men filtered through the founders and ended up in our system of government. But it all started with an act of secession. The founders wanted a better system of government for the American colonies than what the British government was imposing on them. And for more on that, check out our American Revolution Debate episode, episode 20. So right off the bat, our governing documents were based on the idea that communities have a right to separate from their parent nation if they are being oppressed or mistreated, which is what the Founders did. This is evident from the very wording of the Declaration itself.
1: But the Founders also knew how hard secession would be if it ever happened once America was established. Their bloody fight with the British was well underway by 1776. In an effort to prevent future generations from having to do what they did, the Founders implemented a system of federalism, where political power would be divided among three branches at both the national and state level. They also included special features like the Convention of the States, which would allow a large majority of states to bypass certain powers of the federal government, should they need to. And they even tacked on the Bill of Rights to the Constitution to further bolster the people's power against a wayward national government. The best examples of that being the First, Second, Fifth, and Tenth Amendments. So despite their many disagreements, it could be said that the Founders framed their new government with the words of enlightenment
0: philosopher Dwayne Carter Jr. in
1: mind, prepared for the worst but still praying for the best.
0: Now while we were looking into possible mentions of secession or something similar by Polybius, we came across something called the Conflict of the Orders. This was an ongoing struggle in ancient Rome between the patricians, the upper class, and the plebeians, the lower class. It stemmed from a single act of secession by the plebs in the earliest days of the Republic, around 495 BC. In a moment of crisis, the plebs fled the city and gathered, at the Mons Sacre, or the Sacred Mountain, as a form of protest. This secessio plebis, as it came to be known, pressured the Roman government into establishing the Tribune of the Plebs, giving them a voice in the Republic. This is, of course, a gross oversimplification of the conflict, but we'll leave it at that to avoid a long tangent. The point is, Polybius was well aware of this event, having been born during the later years of the Roman Republic. And this fascinating history likely factored into his analysis of balanced government. Now here's a
1: question for you. Is secession even legal in the United States? In reality, almost everybody thinks of the Confederacy in the American Civil War when the word secession is brought up. But was secession legal back then? How about after the Civil War?
0: Let's dive in. The Declaration of Independence could often be seen as a rallying cry for the legality and necessity of secession. Couldn't the Revolutionary War be seen as an act of secession from England? And surely the colonies wouldn't have waged war against England if their mother country uh, had not used violence and repression against them. Notice the themes of the Declaration which we mentioned earlier. Consent of the governed is one of the major ones. In fact, a government only exercises power justly when those under it consent to it. Clearly, the South did not wish to be governed by the powers in Washington, D.C. anymore. Furthermore, whenever any form of government Note this includes democracies and republics, becomes destructive of the rights of the people, the people have the right to alter or abolish it and institute new government.
1: There are a few problems with this line of thought to take the Unionist view. First, while the Declaration of Independence is an important document, it does not hold any weight in our legal system. Second, it could be said that the colonial situation was not consensual, whereas the constitutional system was. Therefore, Once the people of a state chose to be a part of the Union, there was no option to remove consent, even if future generations wanted to leave. Third, what rights were being violated by the central government in the wake of the Civil War? How were life, liberty, and happiness truly inhibited? It could easily be said that liberty and life were under siege in the slave states, and not due to the national government. Sure, there were tariffs on Southern production, but I'm not sure if that qualifies as oppression. Let's evaluate the document that does hold weight in our legal system. When studying the issue of secession, it becomes painfully clear that the Constitution is not explicit at all on the issue. The Constitution does not make any mention of secession, only what had to happen to admit or create new states. In Article 4, it says that without the consent of the involved state legislators in the US Congress, states could not be split or combined. Though not directly mentioned, secession could reasonably require the same qualifications namely consent of the seceding state legislators and the U.S. Congress. Since Congress never voted to allow secession, you could say that the string of secessions leading up to the Civil War were illegal.
0: It seems pretty clear that the omission of secession in the Constitution was intentional. The framers didn't want their new vulnerable country to splinter soon after its formation. As I'm sure you know, the Tenth Amendment leaves all powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution, nor prohibited to the states, in the hands of the states. This leaves a lot of room for diversity among the states and diffuses tensions between them. Instead of having to have a national solution to every problem, each state could mostly decide what to do on its own and preserve the bonds of the Union. However, westward expansion culminating in the Mexican-American War forced the issue of slavery to the national level. Which states would be slaveholding and which would be free? How would this affect the balance of power between the two sides? Both factions were paranoid that the other would get too powerful. If there were enough slave states to amend the Constitution to legalize slavery, what would stop them? And vice versa for abolition. To combat the slave power, the Republican Party opposed the expansion of slavery. But it is easy to see how this could eventually lead to nationwide abolition. Of course, politician Abraham Lincoln believed that the Union could not be broken, and that secession was invalid and illegal. As he said in his first inaugural address, I hold that in contemplation of universal law,
1: and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. I therefore consider that in view of the Constitution and the laws the union is unbroken, and to the extent of my ability, I shall take care as the Constitution itself expressly enjoins upon me that the laws of the Union be faithfully executed in all the states.
0: Lincoln continued,
1: If a minority in such case will secede rather than acquiesce, they make a precedent which in turn will divide and ruin them, for a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by such minority. For instance, why may not any portion of a new Confederacy a year or two hence arbitrarily secede again, precisely as portions of the present Union now claim to secede from it? All who cherish disunion sentiments are now being educated to the same temper of doing this. Is there such perfect identity of interests among the States to compose a new Union as to produce harmony only and prevent renewed secession? Plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations, and always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments, is the only true sovereign of a free people. Whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy or to despotism.
0: As president, Lincoln put actions to his words by waging war against the Confederacy until they capitulated. However, it wasn't until 1869 that the Supreme Court ruled that secession was illegal in the case Texas v. White, per the majority opinion delivered by Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase. The Union of the
1: States never was a purely artificial and arbitrary relation. It began among the colonies and grew out of common origin, mutual sympathies, kindred principles, similar interests, and geographical relations. It was confirmed and strengthened by the necessities of war, and received definite form and character and sanction from the Articles of Confederation. By these, the Union was solemnly declared to be perpetual, and when these articles were found to be inadequate to the exigencies of the country, the Constitution was ordained to form a more perfect Union. It is difficult to convey the idea of indissoluble unity more clearly than by these words. What can be indissoluble if a perpetual union made more perfect is not? The union between Texas and the other states was as complete, as perpetual, and as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation, except through revolution or through consent
0: of the states. Per the Constitution, the federal government has the power to suppress insurrection and carry on war. An interesting note about this case is that ex post facto does not apply. Chase concluded that the secession had always been illegal. The Radical Republicans were angry with the ruling because they wanted the South to be treated like conquered territory, and the Democrats were likewise upset that Reconstruction wasn't deemed unconstitutional. The
1: answer to this issue wasn't black or white. At the time of the Civil War, there was no law nor court case which prohibited secession, so it was a gray area. In fact, Confederate President Jefferson Davis was never convicted for treason, fun fact, though charges were in the air for four years. Davis's lawyer suggested that when a state seceded, it ceased to be a part of the United States, and those state residents lost their citizenship. Treason is a crime of disloyalty, and foreigners cannot be charged with it. Per the Constitution, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Letting Davis get a trial would have risked an acquittal when the union needed to justify its destructive war.
0: That is so interesting and fascinating about the ex post facto and about the intricacies of, oh, how do we charge these people with betraying the country when technically they weren't even part of the country anymore? It's such an interesting gray area and such an interesting legal battle there. Well, Salmon P Chase said that they had always been part of the union and that it wasn't valid.
1: No, that they should be tried for treason because they were always citizens and then they rebelled against their own country.
0: Yeah, but the lawyer there is is arguing
1: the lawyer said, "Well, we don't really know." And also the trial would have been in would have been in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. So, the, so good the, luck with that. The trial has to or the the jury has to be um full of state residents. So, who knows if you can get 9 people who are going to
0: convict Exactly, exactly. That, that's so fascinating. Such an interesting part of the history. Everyone wants to focus on the war and a Lincoln, and, and sure, that's great, but the, the after effects there and the, the legal ramifications are just as interesting to me. On dollar bills, you can find the Latin phrase e pluribus unum, or out of many, one. This implies that political unity is a virtue, but is it really? Are we stronger when we're together instead of divided? Mostly yes. But when a people is held together involuntarily and consists of diverse groups, political unity is probably a bad thing. Spoiler alert, diversity is not our strength. Diversity leads to disunity, distrust, and conflict, at least when the differences matter. A divided people is more likely to start a civil war because there are not enough common bonds to keep brother from murdering brother. As the size of a union increases, the likelihood of disunity increases with it. That's why there has been so much debate in the Western tradition over the critical mass of democratic polities. Plato and Aristotle recommended only a few thousand families. In their time, the city-state was dominant, and probably only contained about a few thousand families. But I think their general idea was right. It is not possible to have a functional democracy when there are hundreds of millions of people spread across thousands of miles. Very true.
1: The term balkanization originated in the 1990s when the former Yugoslavia broke up into Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Kosovo, Montenegro, Macedonia, Serbia, and Slovenia. To balkanize means to divide a country, territory, etc. into small, quarrelsome, ineffectual states. To many, balkanization is runaway secessionism and arguably the natural consequence of secession movements. But it's not quite that simple. Yugoslavia broke up because it was an artificial and forced partnership between cultures, religions, ethnicities and languages which were hostile to one another. Once the communist strongman Tito was dead, there wasn't enough inertia to keep the House of Cards standing. Orthodox Serbs, Catholic Croats, and Muslim Bosnians fought each other in a gritty war, until other countries forced them to come to a peace and draw up borders among themselves and each other. For example, uh, Bill Clinton famously bombed Serbia. That was in that conflict. Thus, we have the countries of Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina, All of these groups have strong cultures and with united members, but it also kept them separated from the other groups. For this reason, you shouldn't expect to see Croatia have a civil war, because Croats are united. Would the same happen in America? I don't think so. Though there are some regional, uh, quote, cultures, they are not strong enough to keep a region from splintering further. It is easy to see parts of a neo-confederacy fighting with each other, for example, the liberal cities versus the conservative suburbs and countryside. Though Balkanization is seen as a terrible thing, I think, in their case, it was a return to a natural state of things. Is consolidation or dissolution the natural course of history? Empires rise and fall. I think it is natural to go through cycles of conquest and disintegration. On the one hand, large states have an easier time conquering enemies, but governing large territories is difficult to do effectively over time. This ties into Anticyclosis. Watch Anticyclosis, episode 1. You won't regret it, we promise. Strong men create good times, and you know the rest. Whether it's Persia, Rome, or America, they start small, expand quickly, struggle to
0: keep it all together, and then fall apart. Every time. Why don't we turn our attention now to some recent examples of secession efforts, so you can really get a feel for how close to home some of these movements are, starting in Europe. The northeastern corner of
1: Spain, known as Catalonia, is an old and wealthy area of the country. It has Barcelona, if you've heard of that and it has recently expressed a desire to return to the levels of political autonomy it benefited from before the Spanish Civil War, from 1936 to 1939. Following the nationalist victory, Francisco Franco took power and applied it across the nation, suppressing Catalonia's liberty in doing so. Three years after Franco's death in 1975, a constitution was drawn up which returned some of Catalonia's former freedoms, and when the effects of the 2008 financial crisis rippled throughout the world, Catalonian separatists cited national financial problems, budget mismanagement, and lopsided tax burdens as further reasons for secession. Since then, Spain's government has cracked down on pro-Catalan protesters, leaders, and politicians, and it is still unclear whether the region will win independence, despite the popularity of recent referendums.
0: For centuries, Scotland fought the English to maintain its independence. However, in 1707, they formally joined under the banner of Great Britain. Much like the colonies in America, the Scottish eventually got tired of being governed from so far away, and political activists began lobbying to strengthen local governance. This achieved some success, and the Scottish Parliament was ultimately established in 1999. Since then, the movement has given rise to pro-Scottish political parties and continued referendum efforts.
1: And also, since Brexit occurred, Scotland has actually wanted to leave the Union even more because they want to rejoin
0: the EU. Oh, okay, so they want to leave... England, but join the EU. Yes. Oh, interesting there. That's out of the frying pan into the fire. Don't do that, guys. Seriously, don't do it. (laughs) That's a matter of opinion. (laughs) As for the Welsh independence movement, it isn't much different from that of Scotland, so we won't dive into that one.
1: Now, let's jump over to the most volatile part of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland. It has a much more exciting fight for freedom than the others, and some might say that's for good reason. Centuries of British rule and oppression of the Catholic population of Ireland was bad enough, but the Potato Famine, which lasted from 1845 to 1852 and led to over 1 million deaths by starvation, gave the Irish plenty more reason to despise their British rulers. This hatred culminated in the Easter Uprising, or Easter Rebellion, depending on who you ask, an attack on Britain's provincial headquarters and general post office on Monday, April 24, 1916, led by the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Though the rebels declared independence and managed to control much of Dublin, British forces overwhelmed them, and by the weekend, the rebellion was crushed. This sparked the Irish War for Independence, which resulted in a large portion of Southern Ireland becoming independent, which we know today as the Republic of Ireland, while a mere six counties of the Emerald Isle remained under British control. Republican nationalists rebranded themselves as the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, and continued the fight, escalating violence in the area throughout the late 20th century in a period known as the Troubles, which was characterized by bombings, shootings, and assassinations. Peace talks eventually made headway, and as of 2005, the IRA has agreed to pursue Irish independence through mostly peaceful means.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll take them at their word. The European Union, as we mentioned earlier, is an evil globalist dictatorship. Change my mind. Change my mind. (laughs) And it's no wonder that some countries want to GTFO. The Brexit movement coincided with the rise of the Trump era, so Americans probably didn't pay too much attention to it. But basically, Britain held a referendum to decide whether or not to leave the EU and reestablish themselves as an independent country. The people voted to leave in 2016, and as of 2020, the country has officially left the trading network, so to speak, and can import and export as it pleases in line with the agreements made with the EU upon separation. Frexit is the proposed French exit from the EU. French nationalists have expressed a desire to leave, while former presidential candidate Marine Le Pen even campaigned on a promise to hold a referendum on Frexit, or simply remain and challenge Brussels at every level in an effort to reshape EU policy and really just be a thorn in their side. In either case, nationalism in France and England has increased tensions with the EU, and who knows which countries will consider secession next.
1: Now let's move on to the East, or... China! The British Empire gained control of Hong Kong in the 1840s and allowed it to prosper as a royal colony while acquiring new territories in the region following the Opium Wars. The British eventually relinquished their control of the area in 1997 when their 99-year lease came to an end, and Hong Kong was handed over to the Chinese government. At the time, China promised to respect the customs and autonomy found in the state's basic law, which explicitly defined Hong Kong as free and capitalist. To this day, it remains one of the most economically capitalist places in the world. China promised to uphold the agreements in the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984. Suppression of voter rights, crackdowns on protests, and widespread censorship determined that that was a
0: lie. What about Taiwan? We won't say much about this one because, thankfully, our fearless leader Nancy Pelosi ended communism for good by defying China's recent threats to shoot down her jet if she travels to Taiwan. Just kidding. She probably got the ball rolling on World War III. Anyway, Taiwan has traded hands a few times. First, it was held by the Chinese, then lost to Japan in the Sino-Japanese War, but returned to Chinese control following Japan's loss in World War II. Then, in the aftermath of the Chinese Civil War, Mao's Communist Party acquired Beijing, took power, and forced the defeated Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists to flee. Where to? Taiwan, of course, a mere 100 miles off the coast. Fun fact, only 14 countries recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, one of them being Vatican City. At this point, three things are clear. One, China really wants Taiwan and will challenge anyone who would criticize them or intervene. Two, Taiwan really wants to be independent. And three, the Taiwanese hate Nancy Pelosi. See how this congresswoman started a third world war with one simple trick.
1: It's funny how they have the tactic of just attacking anybody who criticizes them. It's kind of like uh, with Turkey, you can't, you're can't, you not allowed to say anything about the Armenian genocide. Oh, really? Yeah. If you try to say something on, and they catch wind of it, they are going to come after you. Boy, you better believe it.
0: So if I fly over there and I just walk into the middle of a street and I say, hey, I love the Kardashians, they'll probably uh, throw me in jail.
1: No, but if you said Turkey committed the Armenian genocide... Then you are—you're gonna get in some big trouble. Oh, nice. I mean, Turkey's like—if you—if a country says that, they better apologize, or Turkey's like never gonna have anything to do with them again. They're <laughs> very off proud of it or war. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just inspired the Holocaust. That's it. But so
0: it was around
1: 1918, I think. They just no big deal massacred over a million Armenians.
0: Not to get too deep into it, but why? Just because?
1: Uh, I think they they didn't want to be a part of, like, the Ottoman Empire or something. I don't know.
0: Oh, well, yeah, you can't, you can't disagree with them. I mean, if you're going to be part of the empire, you just better bend but over. But it wasn't
1: it. like killing soldiers. It was like straight-up genocide of the Armenian people. Yikes. Except if you're Turkey, then, of course, that's all propaganda and all fake. So, don't believe it. Moving to our corner of the woods, uh, Texas comes up a lot and uh, the Neo-Confederacy. Our ninth episode, Epic Last Stands, touches on Texas independence in the Americas. So check that one out for more details than we'll have here. American settlers in Texas weren't getting along very well with the Mexican government in the 1830s. And pretty soon the political and military interventions proved too much for them to take. They declared independence from Mexico in 1835 and fought the forces of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana with the help of American volunteers. After some early losses in the terrible defeat at the Alamo, the Texan forces did manage to turn things around and defeat Santa Ana, which paved the way for a short-lived Texas independence before the region
0: joined the United States in 1845. In 1941, two local politicians from the Pacific Northwest spearheaded an unorthodox movement aimed at generating funds from state and federal sources to be used for road construction, logging, and mining in Curry County, Oregon. Their plan? Secede from the Union, of course. Who needs a GoFundMe when you can just create a new state for publicity? But publicity is about all they got. Sure, five counties in Oregon and Northern California officially recognized them, and they did make it to the front pages of national newspapers. But the bombing of Pearl Harbor in the following month eclipsed their momentary fame. The attack prompted Gilbert Gable and Randolph Collier, the ringleaders of the scheme, to pledge loyalty to America once again. Besides a few businesses and political groups, on the West Coast, borrowing the Jefferson name, and a short revival in 1971, the failed act of secession simply lives on as a funny bit of trivia. Sad, you know. I've actually heard that the conservative part of Oregon, which is
1: like the southern and eastern part of it, away from Portland and uh, Salem and all that, they want to exit Oregon and join Idaho.
0: Really, join Idaho?
1: That's that's who they border. Interesting. I mean, they're not going to join California.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that because while I was researching this, there was some early talks around this time of them, of that county and the like the Jefferson state joining Northern California, which was preferable to where they were for some reason. And so that's why some of those counties in Northern California were cool with this, um, because just that area of that, that border area was, I guess, similar enough to where they thought, OK, we could all be one separate state. Um, but I think Idaho nowadays would definitely be more to the liking of those people. Even Northern California is too close to Southern California. Yeah,
1: there, there's too many people in Portland and Salem that are even, that outvote them in every election. So Oregon's always going to go blue, even though the the people on the outskirts hate all that's going on in Portland and they're embarrassed by Portland.
0: I would be too, and I would definitely be sympathetic. Uh, to that, and I am sympathetic to wanting to join up with Idaho if they are on the same, you know, side politically, which I have reason to believe yeah, that they are. They that's are. why they it, want to get away from all that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised, man. Idaho has Boise State in it. I know, but all these states that formerly were like, oh yeah, that's in the middle of nowhere, nobody wants to live there. They're getting invaded. Mm-hmm. by these these people leaving California, leaving New York. They're not going to Idaho. You'd be surprised. You would be surprised, man. Take take a look at it. Some some of the bigger cities are really getting lefty and it's it's bad, man. Now, you may remember the proposed Cal exit from a few years ago, and this is one of my favorites. This was a failed movement to encourage California to exit the United States. It gained attention as a meme in 2017 and 2018 but never gathered political momentum, probably because so many Californians are doing the opposite, as I have just mentioned, exiting California and moving to more conservative states to escape the progressive hellhole they've created. But a recent article by Mercury News has posed this question. Will the Supreme Court's recent abortion ruling bring life back into the Cal exit plan? I sure hope so. They are welcome to leave. There's the door. Moving up to our northern neighbors. The French
1: occupied Canadian land before it was cool. But that didn't stop the British from officially claiming their fair share in 1793. As decades passed and tentative political alliances formed, British and American culture rubbed off on the people of Quebec until fears of complete erasure came to a head in the mid-20th century. The Separatists formed their own political party, the Parti Québécois, which championed the cause and brought about two referendums, a 60-40 split in 1980, a loss for the Separatists, and an insanely close 49.4 to 50.6 split in 1995, delivering a second loss to the movement.
0: What about our opinions of all of this? In my opinion, the American Civil War was definitely justified. Sometimes you just gotta squash it, as the kids say, and settle things the old-fashioned way. But seriously speaking, two wrongs don't make a right. Yes, slavery was a moral wrong, but the Union imposing its will on the states, who had legal autonomy on this issue, was also wrong. With the Industrial Revolution in full swing, slavery was already going to be made obsolete by machines. Even the people at the time could have predicted that. The Union could have just let things be, and waited until the time was right to slowly phase out the practice of slavery. Instead, they wrecked the Southern economy for decades afterward, ruined North-South relations, and replaced slavery with Jim Crow. Now, was that such an improvement? No. And you could argue that the South could have just let things be as well, at least for a while longer. Instead of jumping too early into a costly war, they were likely to lose, and did lose. As for secession in general, it is absolutely justified. If people want to leave, they should have that freedom. Like Evan said, there's the door. Nobody's stopping you. A peaceful separation is always preferable to forcing your own will on others. It avoids bloodshed and expensive military costs, it doesn't risk destabilizing your economy, and it doesn't risk a loss in war, and if all else fails... You can always wait until the other guys fail and then take over when they are weak. My diabolical plan for Cal exit. (laughs) Always ask yourself, what would Sun Tzu do? And to those who say, wow, so you think South Carolina or Franklin should have just been its own country? I answer, yes. If Vatican City can be its own country at a whopping 0.2 square miles, then anything is possible. The bottom line is this. The fact that the idea of secession is usually unpopular is its own safeguard against runaway splintering. Secession isn't something that can happen over and over, dividing people into smaller and smaller groups indefinitely. Religion works like that, but politics is different. You can only divide so much before you run the risk of being taken over and incorporated into the larger group once again. With that being said, I think that when the issue of secession starts to gain traction, that's probably a good indication that it's time to go ahead and do it.
1: As for my opinion, I say secession is not ideal, but it is potentially far better than revolution. However, in the case of the Civil War, I don't think secession was justified. Perhaps it would have been justified if the South was actually being oppressed by the North, but the South seceded largely to maintain oppression of some of its own people. Ironically, the South's secession directly led to the abolition of slavery and the death of over a quarter million of its people. So they really played themselves. Congratulations. You played yourself. There is also the legal issue of secession in American law, and I think Texas v. White got it square on the nose. Both Congress and the state legislators need to approve of a secession to make it valid. However, I must admit that the Confederacy had a legal point in its favor. It complained that the free states violated the Constitution by not returning runaway slaves, which was 100% true. It wasn't the Constitution. When is secession valid, then? I would propose a situation where, say, 49 states agree to just bully a 50th state, say Texas. Uh, Then Congress could uh, tax away all its wealth and not help the state in any way as some form of punishment or plunder. Would this be okay? Per Texas v. White, there is no legal avenue for secession, since Congress wouldn't let them go if they had this sadistic plan for some reason. Though it would be illegal, I think secession would be justified. This hardly ever happens in reality, though. Most of the time, there are tax burden inequalities within a nation. The inland states have to finance border control and the Coast Guard. Rich states will contribute more than poor states, etc. My problem with secession is this. Where does it end? Would it end with a state or a region? Why can't a city secede from a state? Why can't a billionaire secede from all governments to avoid taxes? The logical end of secession is radical individualism and anarchy. So secession must only be done in the most
0: extreme circumstances. Now let's have some fun and predict the future, so to speak. How likely is secession? When Sarah Silverman, of all people, is seriously suggesting that we split into America 1 and 2, maybe it's time to consider the option. And if enough liberal talking heads start bringing it up, the normies will fall in line, and maybe we can actually start to plan for a real, peaceful national divorce which benefits everyone. It's possible unlikely but possible how would secession go down if i could control the outcome of a mutual secession here's what i would want we divide the country into three separate nations first the south and the midwest or central region but we won't call it new compton because it's south and central of course we'll call it maga country duh second is the west coast and third is new england Ideally, the coasts would join since they're the most uh, liberal areas and they'd be divided by us in the middle. But that's why we'd have to create three countries instead of just two because we are smack dab in the middle separating them. Now, if the libs decide to join Canada, then they'd make one giant horseshoe country around us. And that would be unfortunate. But I think we could take them because we've got all the guns. The real problem is this. MAGA country would be surrounded by libs on the top, right, and left. And they'd have to defend against border invasions from the South, which is a bad situation. But again, we have all the guns, so maybe it would be okay. And when the progressive policies on the West Coast and New England inevitably fail, we'll just take them over, quote-unquote, liberate them, and impose our will on them. But what do I think will actually happen, realistically? I'm tempted to say it could start with Florida. All it takes is one brave state to say, "I, right, I'm going to head out, and others will follow. It could be an uh, I'm Spartacus moment, and I think Florida has proven itself to be a truly different breed in more ways than one. And with the world's eyes watching in real time, the federal government may be paralyzed into letting it happen for fear of international criticism. Alternatively, if Trump actually wins in 2024, the left could go so ballistic that they start the secession process for us. And to me, that would be a win-win.
1: First of all, I don't think America will voluntarily split. Maybe one part will want to leave, but the rest won't let it, due to ego and lost resources. So, secession, if and when it occurs, will be illegal. The only question in my mind is how the national government will respond. If it happened tomorrow, Sleepy Joe wouldn't do anything substantial, I don't think he'd send troops in. But stronger leaders might react as Lincoln did. The one factor that might keep them from waging a second civil war is that international sentiment is strongly against waging war against your own people nowadays. The outcry would be strong and swift. Remember when Chechnya seceded from Russia and Russia fought two wars to get them back? Chechnya was literally full of Islamic extremist terrorists who kidnapped people as their main source of income, and yet they were widely condemned for for waging war to get it back. Frankly, I think they should have just let him go, but I don't know. If the president were to wage war against his own people and cause over 600,000 to die like Lincoln did, which by the way today would be 6.9 million people if we use the same percentage of deaths, he would be condemned as a war criminal, and I think rightly so. Assuming America did split, I think the South is the most likely culprit, obviously. Historically, and just culturally, it is. According to a poll conducted in June of 2021 by Brightline Watch, 66% of Republicans and 50% of independents in the South are cool with seceding from the Union. That's just bonkers, I mean, But before you think it's some lost cause phenomenon. of Democrats in the Pacific states are also in favor of secession for their own reason. So it does look like this isn't just a radical Trump Republican phenomenon. I say that America needs to repent and everyone needs to believe the same things on the important issues, but that's not going to happen. So if secession happens, I hope it isn't responded to with violence. We could see what happens to the two or three or whatever countries as time goes on. Maybe... Democratic policies would produce a thriving nation and the South would go down in flames. We don't know for sure until we try. What's the alternative? To continue to hold everyone together in an unhappy union and have violent shifts in policy at the national level? Our current path is unsustainable. We cannot thrive when a majority of people in both parties think the U.S. is headed in the wrong direction.
0: May God help us. Now it's time for the takeaways. Ironically, all political disagreements will eventually lead to a consensus on the issue of separation.
1: There are simultaneously forces that unite us and divide us. History does not move in one direction.
0: Secessionist tendencies are alive and well throughout the world. When states become too vast and too powerful, people naturally become resentful and want more local government. Secession is pretty much illegal in America, but when has that stopped us? Now time for the lingering questions. When will America reach its farthest extent like Rome's during the reign of Trajan? When will we finally just reach, like I mentioned earlier, critical mass and things will start to implode?
1: I think the only possible addition would be uh, Puerto Rico. That's that's the only one I see that's maybe a a new state. Otherwise, I think we have reached our maximum extent. I think so. I don't see where we can't. I mean, we're not going to take part of Canada or part of Mexico. Cuba's pretty much
0: out of the question. I I agree. I think Puerto Rico could be a thing. I mean, it's been talked about every year that I can remember. People always flirting with that every now and then. Oh, Puerto Rico, maybe 51? 51st state? Uh, But I don't know that it ever really gains much traction. And uh, certainly we learned our lesson trying to annex Canada that one time. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do it again. Hey, but here's something interesting. Did you hear about all of the American immigrants and Mm-hmm. Tourists or I don't know how temporary these people are, you know, staying there or if they're becoming permanent residents in different cities in Mexico, but the locals are not happy. And now the shoes on the other foot and they're saying, Yo, why all these gringos down here? They're changing the culture. They're gentrifying. So now there's actually talk of them <laughs> I wish I was making this up of building the wall. They're literally talking about doing that to keep the gringos out. I don't blame them. Dude, this is peak clown world. It's such a clown world. It's a clown world after all. Yeah, so going back to, to all of that, the original point, Mexico may start to be something that we might just take over, right? If enough white people end up down there, it might just become America too. But I don't think that's, that's going to happen. I think they're actually going to push us out eventually if it gets to the point where, where we are displacing their culture. They will start to push us out, or they will build the wall. And then we'll be back to where we were. So we're probably at the extent of our, of our size.
1: Now, under what president did we get our 50th state? It was either Hawaii or Alaska, I need to know.
0: Uh, I want to say it was Hawaii, and I want to say it was Ford? No, it wasn't that Before recent. that. It was, it okay. was like Eisenhower. Like, probably Eisenhower. Uh, wasn't he after Eisenhower, Gerald Ford?
1: Yeah, okay, Ford. so I, You're no, like,
0: no, it was... Uh, come on, that's probably a difference of a couple of years. No, it was like 20 years. Probably. All right, okay. Gerald Ford. Yeah, that was like the... Nah, dude, it was the late 50s. Ford is right in there, isn't he?
1: Ford is after Nixon.
0: Who am I thinking of then? Truman. Eisenhower. Truman! That's who I was thinking of. Not Ford, Truman. I, I was, was thinking, thinking it could have been Truman, but... That's... I don't know why I said Ford. Really stupid there. I should have just said Carter. <laughs>
1: President Carter. Yeah. Okay, and he's, I was just wanting to say, some, someday in the history books, it'll say, America's furthest extent during the reign of Eisenhower.
0: During the reign, yeah.
1: Probably with. So he's our Trajan. Yeah. Kind of fits. Eisenhower's pretty cool. Be a cool guy. Is our current moment one of consolidation or dissolution? And I mean the whole world, such as the EU, NATO, but also like China. What yes. What do you think?
0: I think in the West- this is a time of dissolution because we've seen such a rise in nationalism all across Western nations, as we mentioned, France and England, but in America too. Trump was a, definitely a more nationalist candidate and a nationalist president more so. So there's a rise in that sentiment. There's a rejection of globalism as to how expansive that is and how far reaching it is into like the normiverse. It's not really that much. But I think there is a certain awakening that is happening in the political realm with politicians saying, hey, even if they don't necessarily believe this, they're saying, hey, this could be my ticket to winning an election. Oh, I'm going to be a nationalist. I'm going to be a MAGA type candidate. I'm going to be a pro-Trump candidate. And so even if it's only branding, it's being that that sentiment is being adopted. However, in the East, it's consolidation. China is definitely leading that. And Russia, with their activities in Ukraine, whatever's the heck's going on over there still, they're trying to consolidate power.
1: So maybe you're saying the West is dis- dissolving and the rest of the world is consolidating.
0: Yes, I would argue that all day. When would slavery have been outlawed if the South never seceded? Evan, what do you think? It would have been a long
1: time. I think the South would have held on to the institution, or at least the legality of it, whether it was you know, actually, profitable to do so is another question. The Industrial Revolution definitely would have made slaves less valuable, but I think they would have continued. And, you know, in agricultural production, it was a, a long time before, you know, before machines started displacing people. The tractor and all that wasn't until the 1900s.
0: Yeah. And even then, when you think of like the Dust Bowl and you think of the Great Depression, you see even like footage that they have of farms and things. Most of them weren't heavy, heavily industrialized. They certainly weren't riding around in the type of machinery that they have today, that it's like two stories tall, it's it's harvesting all this wheat, all this hay, you know, baling machines and things like that. There was none of that for a long time. Uh, and I think some of the jobs that machines still can't do definitely would have still had a market for, for slavery. Housework or, like, lawn work, things like that. It would have slowly shrunk in from heavy industry and from like field work into more local around the home residential type work. But that certainly would have still had a market for it. And so there still would have been slaves. It had the slavery not been outlawed.
1: I don't think slavery would have ever been, would have, it would have been a long time before it was outlawed at the national level if you have the South as part of the union, because they would have pitched such a fit. And then whenever there's new states, they're going to fight for half of them to be slave states and have to be free. Mm-hmm. Yes, um,
0: so maybe maybe it would have taken until the mid 20th century. I think it
1: would have taken a lot longer, but once it became less profitable to have slaves, the they might have done some arrangement where they paid off the slave owners, like they did in every other country besides Haiti that outlawed slavery. So if you pay off the slave owners, you're like compensating them for their quote lost property, and yeah. that's kind of that's a compromise solution. So you're giving them the money, uh, and you're freeing the slaves. So you're talking like a slave buyback program. Yeah, basically, but mandatory buyback. That probably would have happened. You're right. Finally, since you're so wise, as president in antebellum America, what would you have done about the issues of slavery and secession, especially if you'd been elected around, let's say, 1860?
0: Oh, just around that time. Yeah, nothing really crazy was going on then. Had I been Lincoln? Well, had I been Lincoln, I probably would have had some prejudices against different groups I would have grown up at a different time with different attitudes and I probably would have been like yeah I got the power I'm going to stick it to these people you know I might have just been a tyrant you know, or as tyrannical as some in the south accuse him of being but I don't know if you just if you just transplant me boom Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court boom you just drop me right there in 1860 I'm the president I probably would have tried to be a little bit more pragmatic I think there was room for pragmatic solutions. And it may not have been Lincoln's fault. There was a lot of animosity just towards those states and the way the, those states were governed, you know, between North and South. So the president can only do so much. He can't control how n- other Northern states within the union are doing their local politics, which was probably a big reason that the um, the Southerners rebelled. As you mentioned earlier, they weren't returning their quote unquote property Regardless of what you think about the morality of that, it was legally not kosher. They were supposed to be returning those things. So they were. there was many examples of them acting antagonistically towards their other states in the union. So could I have done much? Maybe not. But I would have tried to go with a pragmatic approach or maybe just go up to, to the rest of the northern states and say, hey, listen, we'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Let's, let's try to work something out. Try to behave ourselves. But who knows? That probably wouldn't have done any good.
1: What about you? Yeah, there's not much you can do because they were they seceded because Lincoln was elected. So if you tried to do anything Lincoln did, you would probably just get a secession again and then you just have to do a civil war or let them go. Probably inevitable. Yeah. I don't know if I would have the heart to pull the trigger on, you know, causing over half
0: a million people to die. Yeah. Know, of my own people. Yeah, they were Americans. Yeah. One thing I would do different, though, I'd be packing heat in that theater. Let me tell you what. <laughs> I wouldn't have changed anything. <laughs> Bam! It's a 360 NOSCO, that motherfucker. <laughs> or I would have been wearing a bulletproof hat. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Steel hat. You know, <laughs> if you had bent it at an angle, probably would have deflected. Although, it probably would have killed my wife then. Boing! You know, 90 degree deflection right into her. But I, I would have had guards and I would have been packing. I keep that thing on me. You know what what else might have helped Lincoln if he just had a beer summit with with the southern states like Obama did with the cop or whoever that was on the receiving end of criticism for that incident. And it was on like the White House lawn. They sat down and drank beers. So there you go. Bring some of the southerners up there to the White House. Sit down with them. Have a beer. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom and beer summons.